0: Bring the love of Wisconsin's outdoors in through the beauty and quality craftsmanship of Pella Windows and Doors. Lock in your prices by February 28th and get zero percent interest for up to 48 months. Visit PellaWI.com.
1: Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old now. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So
2: very glad to have you with us. Lots of ground to cover today. Let's get right to it. Now, if you are a regular listener of this program, you know that over the years, I'm I'm not necessarily, and I'm not really a huge fan of Walmart, and I. I under, But I, I've come to realize that the reason, Walmart, for everybody who objects to the success of Walmart, what they need to do is they need to kind of look inside themselves. Because for everybody who says, oh, this this big Walmart came to the outside of town and it drove all these Main Street businesses out of business. Well, okay, wh- who do we have to blame but ourselves? Because, you know, people go to choose to shop at the Walmart instead of shopping at the local businesses. That's just kind of the reality of it. And I also acknowledge that you know Walmart is very very successful at what they do. At the same time, Walmart is a business. It, it, it's a store, and the stores have to generate profit. And if just like if you were running a, a chain of, of gas stations, and, and let's say let's say you've got five in you're you're in West Dallas for the sake of argument, you have four gas stations in West Dallas, and three of them are successful and they're making money, and the fourth isn't, well, what are you going to do? Well, it's easy. You're going to close that fourth one. I mean, maybe you might try to say, hey, is there something that we can do to turn this around? But if ultimately you decide that it's just not worth the effort, that you're not going to be able to make money, you close it. That is what business is all about. And that's why the the news came out um, yesterday that Walmart – will be closing its store that it has essentially located on 103rd and Silver Spring. And this is one of the stores. They've got a number that are in the general area, but this is the one that serves that that northwest side. Walmart also announced yesterday that they were closing three stores in the Chicago suburbs as well that were underperforming. Well, the new alderman from that area decided to wade in on this. And his name is Mark Chambers, and they put out a statement. This is what they said. It's infuriating that such a massive, resource-rich and wealthy Fortune 100 enterprise like Walmart cannot keep such an important location open. The move not only negatively impacts shoppers, pharmacy customers, and store workers, but I fear it will only add to the food desert issues that we are seeing in the area. Studies show that kids and families who don't have regular access to fresh fruits and vegetables and other foods with higher nutritional value can suffer negative impacts such as obesity and diabetes. So he's ripping on Walmart for for closing the store. Walmart, um, for its part, says, look, while our underlying business is strong, this specific store hasn't performed as well as we hoped. There's no single cause for why a store closes, and our decision is based on several factors, including historic and current financial performance, and is in line with the threshold that guides our strategy to close underperforming locations. Employees will be offered transfers to other stores, including seven supercenters that are located within 13 miles. All right, let's open up the phone lines. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. The alderman for this area is outraged that Walmart, apparently making a business decision that this is number one, an underperforming store, and number two, reading into their statement, based on their projections, they don't think that there's anything that they can do that's really going to change the fact that it's an underperforming store. They've made the decision to close the store. They've also pointed out that, well, you know, there are seven other supercenters within a 13-mile radius. The alderman says he's infuriated that a massive resource-rich and wealthy Fortune 100 enterprise like Walmart can't keep this location open. 855-616-1620, that is the old National Bank talk and text line. I'm sorry, I, I don't fault Walmart for making this business decision. Walmart is a private enterprise designed to generate profit. And if I've got a particular store that for whatever reason, maybe it's the location, maybe, well, I mean, it's obviously the location. There's all sorts of different reasons why the store could be failing. But is it reasonable to expect them to keep a failing store open? My answer would be no. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. What do you think? We discuss in a moment. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, so the Walmart on 103rd and Silver Spring is going to be closing. The alderman for the area is upset. Not just that it's closing, because it creates a vacuum in his district. I understand that. But he's mad at Walmart. This is the quotation that got me. He's infuriated that a massive, resource-rich and wealthy Fortune 100 enterprise like Walmart cannot keep such an important location open. Well, okay, the reason Walmart is a successful operation is because if they have locations that aren't performing adequately, they they close them. And obviously, that's what's going on here. Let's start with Rick in Kenosha. Rick, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
3: Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. I am a manager at a a Walmart store. And the reason they decide, upper management decides to close the store is because of a percentage of theft. When a store, and I don't care if it's Walmart, uh, pick and say, I don't care who it is, when it reaches a percentage of theft that is out of control, they close a the store. That's the end of that statement, period.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that, I mean, and I'm sure that is is a factor. I know that there's been, you know, police calls to that, that particular store and all, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, Walmart's a business. Yeah Walmart is a business yep. and once you what do they call it in the industry shrinkage right that's the that's the technical term yeah, for yes, losses correct. caused by yeah. theft right yeah at, at a certain correct. point if you start losing you know losing money and you can't control it what what's the only option it's to close it
3: you got to stop the bleeding you got to stop the bleeding there's a hole yeah. in the ship and the ship is sinking you 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 plug the hole and get out of there period yeah
2: and and of course you know it, it, while well, it's true that i'm sure this might be a bit of an inconvenience rick to some of the people that live in that immediate area walmart i mean it's not like there are no walmarts on the north side of milwaukee like they say they've got what, what right. six or seven within a, a 12 or right. 13 mile radius so it, it maybe right. it's a little bit more inconvenience because you have to drive a little farther or whatever but still hmm. you're, you're going to be yep. able to shop at walmart
3: correct you're correct i mean uh, what's an extra 10 minutes big deal you can get to any Walmart in in fifteen twenty minutes uh, just about in the country. So, I mean, I don't know what this alderman is squawking about, but, uh, you know, he's got to understand yeah. that they make a decision, and that's final, period.
2: Yeah, Rick, thanks so much for the call. I appreciate it. You know, this also, to to the extent that this decision is informed in part— because of losses due to theft or, or whatever, this this kind of doubles back on, on something that we talk about regularly here. That is the impact of shoplifting. Like last week or maybe earlier this week, you know, we did a story about how more and more stores are, are locking everything up. You go into the, the drugstore and you used to be able to go up and just grab a pack of AAA batteries or razor blades or things like that. And now all these products you find, they're under key, lock and key. And then you got to find somebody that can open them up. And that's just driving more and more people to order stuff over the internet, because they don't want to go through that hassle. But this is, I mean, that's one of the effects of theft, and to the extent that theft is a factor, and I, I I believe what Rick's saying, I mean, he works for Walmart, I believe that that's one of the factors that's cutting into the profit margins, and which makes a particular location, well, no longer financially viable. But this idea that because Walmart is a successful company, that means that they should Be I don't know, required or they should just take the losses. Well, no, the owners of Walmart, the shareholders, whatever, they're kind of like, look, if this location is losing money and you don't have a clear idea as to how you're going to turn it around, there's no choice but to close it. Maybe to the extent that, for example, shrinkage or theft was one of the contributing factors leading to the closure of this Walmart, maybe it would be constructive for members of the Common Council, rather than dumping on Walmart, r- maybe it would be um constructive for them to say, okay, maybe we need to look about what's going on in the community and uh, what can we do to stop the theft in the first place. And and by the way, a number of people are correctly pointing out that the shopping center where this Walmart is located on 103rd and Silver Spring used to have a a pick-and-save grocery store there as well. That that closed about five years ago. Tenants in the shopping center now, there's a Dollar Tree, there's a Cosmo Beauty, there's a Value Beauty, there's a Game Shop stop but it's very clear that the, the big box stores that would drive traffic they're they're out of there now um eight five five six one six one six twenty jeff maybe the alderman could get Walmart free property taxes that might offset the losses from shoplifting jeff the manager at the Walmart hit it right on the head this has to do with the facts um just like I believe it was a Speedway on 35th Street by I-90 several years ago, closed due to the blatant amount of shoplifting where people would just walk in and steal the store blind. Um, also, remember the restaurant that you used to love, the Mamma Mia's on, on Silver Spring. Yeah, I grew up going to that Mamma Mia's on Silver Spring and Tetonia. They closed because they were robbed too many times. So, um, yeah, that's... That's the idea that's there. Jeff, the alderman should not be mad at Walmart. He should be mad at his constituents who are either not shopping there or are creating an unacceptable risk of threat. Jeff, the alderman should worry about out of control crime in his area and Milwaukee. Right? See, that's, and that's why, look, I understand. I talk about crime a lot on this program. I I get it. But crime to me is what affects. Livability. Crime to me, it, it's not a chicken and an egg thing. If you want to have a community that, that's vibrant, that grows, if you want to have a community where people want to live in it, if you want to have a community where business people decide they want to invest their money, you, you've got to stop crime. Because if you don't stop crime, people aren't going to patronize the stores. And secondly, business people aren't going to invest their money. I mean, just let's say that you, let's move away from a Walmart, but let's say, you know, you want to start, you know, a sandwich shop, for example, and you've got a choice of different locations that are out there and you say, okay, I can, I can take, you know, my hundred thousand dollars and I want to invest it in a sandwich shop. I want to get a franchise for whatever. And what do you look at? Well, you look at a lot of the different market factors, but one of the things you're going to look at is, okay, what what is the crime situation here? You know, are people going to feel safe coming to my sandwich store? Um, are employees going to feel comfortable coming to the sandwich store? Are we going to be getting robbed? That's all the factors that's there. Jeff, it appears to me that Walmart obviously has a sound business strategy. And following that strategy, it has made them successful as they are. Closing a store because it underperformed is their, cho- is their choice. And with several stores within a reasonable distance, I don't believe this should affect the community in a dramatic way. Now, I understand that when you're talking about the private sector, this is a little bit different than the public sector. And we have discussed this over the years. There are... Lots of post offices, for example, in the city of Milwaukee. I just take this as an example because there are post offices everywhere. Um, Some are relatively close to each other. And some of these post offices are what I would describe as underperforming. But every time there's an effort to try to close a post office, well, everybody in the neighborhood gets, you know, uh, in an uproar. Oh, don't you realize somebody would have to travel an extra half mile or an extra mile or an extra mile and a half to go to, you know, one of the other post offices that's there? And, and my point has always been, yeah, so what? Because you, you if you know, if we want to have post offices, for example, that continue to be there, just because the post office is conveniently located, if it is underperforming, you've got to be able to close it. I mean, uh. You know, don't you, don't you think so? Jeff, cities along with businesses move, stores, departments close, locations open, new locations open. This is normal. It's not popular, but it's the way that businesses and cities at least are supposed to be run. Jeff, I worked there for a while and the constant theft and crime issues there are, were were and constant crime and theft issues were prevalent there. I am not surprised this is happening. Okay, well, here's the deal. Um, Welcome to capitalism. And again, maybe this is one that rather than blasting Walmart, what the alderman wants to do is look inside himself and say, okay, maybe if the problem is it's underperforming because of high rates of theft and crime, maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe that's what we need to concentrate on. Just saying. Hey, Wisconsin, it might be cold out right now, but soon it's going to be warming up and you'll need to get your home ready. That's why I'm here for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by Great Midwest Bank. And this week, we're brought to you by our good friends at Kohler Services, Wisconsin. Learn more about what they have to offer at KohlerServicesWI.com. It's the Wagner Home Improvement Showcase on WTMJ. Uh, we have touched a nerve with this topic. Um, Jeff, I used to be a manager at the Walmart at Capitol Court when they were there. They don't call it Capitol Court anymore. What do they call it Midtown Center. Used to be the manager at Walmart at Capitol Court when they were there. My store was closed because of theft. Jeff, this is the closest Walmart to me, but I don't shop there anymore. It's often messy, and people are running around in there. I definitely understand why it's closing. However, I do feel bad for the people who live nearby and either walk or take the bus. I can easily drive to another store, but it's unfortunate to no longer have a nearby grocery store. Well, I I understand that. Nobody likes to see it closing, but, but, but... The reason it's closing is obviously they're, they're, they're losing money. And if they're losing money because of theft, if that's the real reason that, that's out there, well, okay, maybe that is, this is one of the lessons that the city needs to learn. Jeff, the store was busy all the time. But what, what the Walmart manager said is true. I heard employees say that that was the reason um, also. But, of course, not all of us are stealing. We're a min, an MPD family. And I walk. Oh, I understand. It's, it's, it is going to be an incredible inconvenience. There's no problem, doubt about that. But at the same time, you know, who, who's... Whose fault is this? Jeff, I bet the alderman is someone who was also on board the train to blame the car manufacturers for um, car theft. Well, he's new, so I don't know that he had a chance to talk about it before. But, you know, that's one of the things that's out there. Again, look, I'm sorry the store is closing. I'm always sorry stores, stores are closing. And the loser is clearly the neighborhood. But if Walmart's not making money for whatever reason, you can't blame Walmart. So very glad to have you with us. Um, when I when I first started working, my first job out of law school was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, the old Federal Building uh, downtown, five seventeen East Wisconsin Avenue, right kid of corner from from the Pfister. And one of the big challenges was finding a place to park. And I remember for years back back then, the the area that is now O'Donnell Park. And across the street from it the area that's now the bus depot that's gonna be the Couture, That that was those that was like open air parking lots. And so you drive down there and you'd park every day, you'd, you'd pay a daily fee and then you'd you'd walk, you know, a few blocks. Um, in in the weather to get to, you know, the, the federal building. But that's where you parked. One of the best things about becoming a supervisor in the U.S. Attorney's Office is I got a government-paid-for parking space that was a couple blocks north in the... I think they called it the Shops on Jefferson at the time. But even then, it, it was a couple blocks to, to walk the park. And parking was a huge, huge factor uh, back in the day. Now, we... Our, our our offices, the GKB offices, are now in in the Avenue. You know the wonderful new facility. It's it's the you know the Grand Avenue revisited. And I remember when they announced that we were moving down there. One of the very first questions that I had was, okay, you know where where are we going to be parking? Now there is a a large parking structure that is attached to the avenue. And so, you know, we we all have have parking. It's a big parking ramp. It's covered parking. It's great. But you have, you know, you have the parking spaces. Now, sometimes it gets busy. So you got to circle a little bit to find a parking space. But you can always find a parking space. So parking is, in fact, convenient. And I like the fact that, you know, I'm parking in a structure that is attached to where it is that I, I work. But parking is important for people. Well, as it was announced last week, and we discussed this at the time, Northwestern Mutual has now become the latest of a series of companies that have announced that they're moving their offices from the suburbs and they're, they're moving them downtown, or at least they're, if not moving their headquarters, they're, um, in the case I think of Milwaukee Tool, they're, they're going to you know put a, a facility downtown. Wright Height has done it, and Fiserv, and Milwaukee Tool, and Northwestern but Northwestern Mutual. But Northwestern Mutual has announced that they plan to relocate uh, 2,000 people from their Franklin campus, and they intend to move them downtown. Now, as it stands now, ultimately, once this is done, they're going to have, or they're supposed to have, north of 5,000 employees who are going to be in, in the downtown area. So wh- what comes along with that is, well, you, you need to have places for at least the vast majority of those people to park. Now, I understand um, part of the hope is, well, as part of a revitalization of downtown, you'll have people who will decide to live downtown, and they won't need cars, and they'll be able to you know, walk to their, their offices or take a bus or hop the trolley or, or whatever. But at least in the short term, I don't think you're going to see that happen, and in the long term, at least I personally don't think that's going to happen. Because while I think having a downtown site is perhaps attractive to younger employees at some point in time, who, who might love to like live in an apartment an apartment downtown in the Third Ward or, or have a condo downtown. What, what's ultimately going to happen is, you know, once those younger employees. I don't know, once they're out of school for a few years, they meet other people, they get married, they want to start families, and then they're going to be moving out to the suburbs too because they're going to want to get into a better school system, they're going to want a house, they're going to want a little bit of a yard, all sorts of things like that. So the, the need for cars is not going to disappear. Our number, 855 616 which is the Old National Bank talk and text line. All right, how important is available parking readily accessible parking, and readily accessible parking that is nearby to the business. How important is that going to be in terms of making sure a downtown office building is going to succeed? I, I know if it was not for available parking, that would have been at least one factor that I know our, our bosses would have considered in you know where we decided to move. And I think one of the issues that's out there with Northwestern Mutual is where where is everybody going to park? you know where are these extra two thousand spots going to come from when you start moving people downtown, and how big a deal will that be eight five five six one six one six twenty that's the old national bank talk and text line these move downtown these moves downtown are great but don't you have to make sure that you have close by parking to make it work? 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. You know, I, I, I was thinking about this announcement that Northwestern Mutual made where they're, they're pulling out of, of Franklin and they're going to be you know relocating another 2,000 employees downtown. And that's a big win for downtown and I don't mean to, to underplay that. The question, the practical question that's been kicking around the back of my mind is, Where are you going, where is the parking going to be for another 2,000 employees? And, you know, is it, look, I understand maybe there's some other, uh, because not everybody's back working downtown, maybe there's some deals that you can cut with, you know, other parking structures and stuff. But how, how far are people going to be willing to walk to be able to get to their jobs, especially When we're talking about, you know, winter in, in Wisconsin. I mean, yet you can put people, I guess, down at, at O'Donnell Park and, and have them walk, uh, you know, a few blocks and things like that. But how desirable is that going to be? I mean, downtown parking, downtown parking was an issue when I worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office in, in the 1980s. And I don't necessarily think it's gotten any better. Jeff, we were just discussing this today. I work near Northwestern Mutual downtown, and we talked about how finding parking is already getting harder with more people downtown. I'm thinking it's gonna be a nightmare to add 2,000 more people. Dawson in Sockville, Dawson, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
4: Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so my fiance is gonna be moving down to one of the, you know, with one of the businesses that is making the move uh, later this year. Uh, mm-hmm. That was one of the deciding factors for her, um, you know, whether she needs to be looking for another job or not. Because, A, we're not planning on living down in the city of Milwaukee or near sure. there. But, B, she doesn't want to walk or have to risk her safety or anything, sure. along with, like, worry about the car. So, a huge factor. And I agree 100% to, like, it's already kind of chaotic down there. And now you're going to jam 2,000 plus more people down there. I mean, if If she didn't have the parking structure it, it would have made that even more of a problem, and I can only imagine the nightmare Northwestern mutual is going to deal with
2: right no th- thanks for the call to us, and I appreciate well and, and see that is that's one of these like real world issues that are there is where where are you going to put people because on the one hand you say that that's that's great and we're going to add more space well again where where the, the avenue you know, you see all these reports, this company's coming down, that company's coming down, and it's great, it creates that vibrancy, but I, I, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, parking is already a little bit, you know, strained, you know, what, what happens when you suddenly add, you know, 25% more vehicles or whatever, and from an employee standpoint, if you're used to, I don't know, parking in a secured lot in Franklin, Alright, if you're coming down to Northwestern Mutual and you're told, okay, well, you know, here, you know, we've got parking, but it's four or five blocks away. Somebody was saying, you know, they should rent places and shuttle people in. I, I, I just, as a practical matter, I'm not sure how employees would feel about, hey, I'm driving to this lot and then they're going to run shuttle buses back and forth um jeff i am a consultant and i have been for over 25 years i've worked with clients in downtown milwaukee parking is a huge issue even if the company pays for it by the time you park walk to the building get in the elevator get to your office or cube you can easily add 10 to 15 minutes on top of a long commute i i say No thanks to that. Jeff, they'll just have to um, build a parking structure. Um, Also, they're going to have to work with county transit to re-energize the freeway flyer system. Um, You know, actually, a number of people are are mentioning that. You you used to, and I I think the premise, I think, look, what the city of Milwaukee is hoping is that Again, you're going to have people that are just going to make the decision that they are going to relocate downtown to be closer to where they work. And I have no doubt that for some employees that might be the case. But long-term, I just don't think that's sustainable. Like I say, long-term, you know, once – maybe maybe that's what you do after you're, after you're out of college for a year or two. But, you know, after a couple of years, when like I say, when you get married and you want to start a family, well, then you, you start thinking, okay, well, maybe, you know, we want to buy a house – we want to, you know, find a school system that is superior to MPS. I'm sorry if that offends some people, but that's just the reality. We, we want to start building equity. We want little lawns and things like that. And we want to get out of the city. Well, then if you're going to work there, you have to continue to get back into the city as well. No doubt about it. Um, Jeff, my wife works for Northwestern Mutual and she's getting transferred downtown. She's looking for a new job uh, now because you know she's concerned with her safety well again I, I don't th- that's that that is a that is a factor and I'm sure Northwestern Mutual is planning for this because you have to make sure that those employees feel safe. You have to make sure that wherever those employees are parking, You're not going to get into a situation where you come out and all of a sudden two dozen of them have the windows of their cars broken out. You've got to make sure that, you know, it's not a situation where, hey, somebody is working late at night and, you know, walking to their car and then end up getting mugged or whatever, because all you need is one or two things like that to happen. And all of a sudden, you're going to see a lot of these employees say, hey, you know, we don't have a part of that. Another person saying too bad they still don't have the freeway flyers. Uh, That's... That I think is a factor. Jeff, like any business or hotel, like the one proposed for the east side, parking needs to be integrated into the building's design. Well, I don't two thousand 2,000 spots is is an awful lot, so hope they're going to plan to deal with this, but I know it's a factor. Jeff, parking is an absolute necessity for Northwestern Mutual employees. They need to consider out lots and busing their employees in. Jeff, my mom works at the VA. They have had countless break-ins and car thefts. There, um, I think one of the biggest things that businesses need to do to ensure success in downtown Milwaukee is to have either underground parking or some sort of secured parking lot, so there's no concern about car burglaries and or theft. I, to which I, I say amen. Like I say, the parking structure we have, there there is security, and and the security is very very visible. And you know, without going into details, it's twenty four seven security. And I will tell you honestly, I've never. I've never been concerned. Uh, I've never felt unsafe, you know, coming into work, um, either coming in or, or leaving work. Ne- never have. But, again, I, I know that we have a huge security presence that's there, and I also know that I'm parking in a structure that is adjacent to the door that I'm going to go in. I'm not walking, you know, four blocks in the cold. I, I just bring this up because it's, it's been kind of kicking around in the back of my mind. It sounds great to move downtown, but don't you also have to make sure you're going to figure out okay, what is the reasonable plan for where you're going to put this extra 2,000 employees once they get there? Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.
3: Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this.
1: Creative Planning presents Rethink Your Money with John Higginson, Saturday afternoon at 1. At Creative Planning, we offer full-service, comprehensive wealth management services through our in-house team of wealth managers, accountants, and attorneys to integrate all aspects of your financial life. Get all the expertise, all the advice you need, all in-house. Visit
2: creativeplanning.com. That's creativeplanning.com.
1: I'm Van Mobley, and I'm running to be your state senator in Wisconsin's 8th District. We're all tired of the dysfunction in Madison. Vote for me, and I'll fight to return the over $7 billion surplus to you, Wisconsin's taxpayers, before it's devoured by inflation. One of my major priorities as your state senator will be to abolish the state income tax. Vote Van Mobley on February 21st. I'm Van Mobley, and I approve this message. Paid for by Friends of Van Mobley, Peter Monfrey Treasurer. Blaine's Farm and Fleet's big pet care sale is going on now. We're the animal experts,
5: offering massive savings on a great selection of pet food, supplies, and more. Like $3 off all Blaine's Farm and Fleet dog or cat food. Rewards members save an extra 2 bucks. Get 25% off all Kong brand dog or cat toys. Plus, in our automotive department, buy three Goodyear tires, get one free. With up to $100 in rebates when you buy a matching set of four. Shop our new Blaine's Farm and Fleet store in Grafton, located at 1771
1: Wisconsin Avenue. Parenting comes with a lot of questions. Bye Bye Baby can help you prep for everything you expected. Text baby to 42229 to get $20 off your in-store purchase of $100 or more. Only at Bye Bye Baby.
2: Wisconsin's own Gruber Law Offices. One call, that's all.
1: your A wiser way to build your wealth starts with choosing a financial planning firm that is fee only because it means they work for you fee-only firms like financial strategies inc don't work for a bank or brokerage firm or an insurance company or mutual fund company because we don't want our decisions for your best interest compromised in any way we work for you and only in your best interest and fee-only means the success we care about most is yours ask your advisor are you one hundred percent fee-only for one hundred percent of your clients one hundred percent of the time if they answer no get a second opinion I'm Jim Cantrell with Financial Strategies Inc., a fee only, comprehensive financial planning firm. And I believe we can show you a wiser way to build your wealth. So go to financialstrategiesinc.com and schedule a no cost consultation.
0: Financial Strategies, a wiser way to build your wealth.
1: WTMJ W two seven seven CV and WKTI HD two Milwaukee from the Annex Wealth Management Studios. This is News Radio WTMJ, a Good Karma Brand Station. This
6: is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: Hi, Jeff. I live and work from home in downtown Milwaukee. I live about three blocks from Northwestern Mutual. I can tell you parking is already sparse for residents. The private lots are on waiting lists, and street parking is few and far between. Hopefully, they will come up with a solution. Jeff, my son's old roommates work in that building. One lives very close to downtown, and the other is a little north on the east side. But they're 24 and 27 years old, and I can't see them five years from now still living in the apartments. They don't drive to work. I also think some type of secured parking with at least 500 spots would be um, necessary. Yeah, I think that they're – I mean, obviously, that's one of the factors. It's where – where are people going to be? And I, I just, again, personalizing this, I know when we announced that we were moving downtown, that was one of the first questions I had because when when our studios were um, at the lot on Capitol Drive, there was a secured outdoor parking lot that was in in the rear and you know there were issues because whenever you had ice the ice would get on the towers and you get this note saying better move your car because there's ice falling off the the towers and stuff like that but at the same time you knew that you had a secured spot and you knew that even though you had to walk outside to get from outside to get into the building you knew that you were going to be able to park in close proximity and you knew that it was a secured park secured parking lot so you didn't have to worry about how are you going to get there on top of it you also knew that the parking was free um which is you know which was it's it's very nice like where I am now I mean it's it's it comes with the territory you get the parking pass by free I'm sure somebody's paying for it It just means the employee isn't paying for it but it is a huge factor all right here's a story I, I don't you might have missed this but it's getting some attention in the conservative press. Uh, remember Joe Biden, who who wants to hire more IRS agents, and I'm I'm actually. I mean, I want to see the tax laws enforced. I, I, I do. So I'm not as opposed to that as some people are. But here's the, the interesting thing. Apparently, one of the things that the IRS wants to do is they want to establish something they call the SITCA program, Service Industry Tip Compliance Agreement. This this would, for like industries where there are tips, for example, what this would do is have businesses, bars, restaurants, whatever they would they would agree that their point of sale and time and attendance systems and electronic payment settlement methods that information would be provided to the IRS and the idea would be that you know every time, for example, uh, an employee you know rang up like like a credit card charge and you had the credit card charge and you had the tip that they added in, that would automatically then be available for the IRS to look at so the IRS wouldn't have to depend as much on voluntary on waiters and waitresses or servers voluntarily reporting how much their, their tips are. The program would track point-of-sale data provided by employers in order to ensure that service workers like waiters um, are paying taxes on the tips they receive. Now, here's my only comment. The the justification for hiring all these new IRS agents is we're going to go after the whales, the really, really rich people who aren't paying their fair share. Okay, you can have that argument, but it also sounds like I don't think that there's too many really, really rich people who are working as servers, and it sounds like, you know, they're going to get caught up in this as well. Now, you might say, well, they should be paying taxes on all their tips. I'm just saying some of these new IRS agents are kind of clearly be kind of focusing on those servers as well.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin.
2: Welcome back to the show. Well, I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so. I want to revisit something we've talked about once or twice over the last couple weeks. I think all of us would agree that one of the biggest problems in southeastern Wisconsin that we have other than like the homicide rate and things like that is the out-of-control reckless driving. On an almost, if not daily basis, certainly three or four times a week, we will have the story of – the, the person who was killed in the reckless driving incident. Somebody running from the police, broke, goes through a red light, hits and kills somebody. Somebody drag racing down 60th street at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, loses control and crashes into a house and kills themselves. Somebody driving at a high rate of speed, blows through a red light and hits a, a vehicle on the passenger side that has the right of way and the person dies. The stories go on and on and on like that. And, We're not able to get a handle on this reckless driving. And every time this happens, all the talking heads come out and say, okay, well, we're going to try to crack down on this and we're going to adjust the roadways a little. But it it doesn't change the fact that you have a certain segment of the population out there who just doesn't give a rat's rump. Uh, about themselves or anybody else, and if they want to drive 90 miles an hour and run through red lights, they're going to do it. Well, the police department, and and this, now hear me out on this, because this isn't an indictment of the police department. There's this new traffic enforcement unit, and they're they're trying to concentrate on cracking down on on reckless drivers, right? That's it. But reckless driving in the state of Wisconsin is not a crime. It is simply an ordinance violation, meaning all they can do is give you a ticket. And if you've heard me over the last couple weeks talking about this, my, my point has been That is useless now it's useless for most people because you know maybe you would care about that I would you know you get a ticket you get four points on your license your insurance is going to go up if you get a second ticket maybe you lose your license your license gets suspended that's a big deal but the people who are by and large engaging in reckless driving they don't care they don't have licenses or at least many of them don't they don't they've maybe never had a license or they're on a suspended license they don't have insurance they don't care And so giving somebody a ticket, all it does is it's just like, hey, let me, you know, ball up the ticket and throw it in the back. And that's why I have been arguing that if we are serious about this, Tony Evers, Republicans in the state legislature, here's the first thing you need to do. You need to criminalize reckless driving. Treat it like we treat drunk driving. First offense, ordinance violation, civil penalties. Second offense and more, it is a criminal offense. I think that's the way you treat reckless driving as well. So we can say, hey, this is the third time you got caught doing 40 miles, 50 miles an hour in a 20 mile an hour zone. Boom, you're you're going to jail because now all they can do is give them a ticket. And my point, again, has always been nobody cares about the tickets. It's just a joke. And if you follow me on Twitter, I've got a link to the story that today's TMJ4 ran last night and Mike Spaulding alluded to it. Okay, get get this. Here here is the numbers. Um, and Channel Four, I give them credit. They went out and, and they they did this. Okay, here is the deal. Um, let's see between two thousand twenty through two thousand twenty two. Here's the deal. They issued speeding tickets. They issued thirty seven thousand seven hundred and forty five speeding tickets. Okay. 37,745. Would you like to guess what percent? This is speeding. Hang on. We're going to get to reckless driving in a minute. Speeding tickets. Would you like to guess of these tickets issued between 2020 and through 2022, of the 37,745 tickets that they wrote for speeding, would you like to guess how many remain unpaid? Just think about a number in your head. Well, the the number is 17,190. In other words, 45%, almost half of the tickets that were written for speeding over the last two years have not been paid. All right, let us turn to reckless driving. Between 2020 through 2022, 761 citations were given for reckless driving. How you can only write 761 t- citations for reckless driving is another story. 761 citations though were issued. Would you like to guess how many of those tickets remain unpaid? Do 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 do. do. I'll stop you from the suspense. Of 761 tickets that were issued for reckless driving, 587 remain unpaid. I'll do the math for you. 77.1% remain unpaid. In other words, three out of every four citations that the police have issued for reckless driving remain unpaid. (laughs) And you know what? There's effectively nothing that they can do to make people pay. Now, the municipal court judge, Phil Chavez, he says, well, okay, we we know that this is an issue, but there might not be instant payment from people, but over time, it will catch up with them sooner or later with job opportunities, insurance, things of that nature. To which my comment would be Judge, what planet are you on? He says the money portion of this is not only, is not the only deterrent. There might not be instant payment for people, but over time it will catch up with them with job opportunities, insurance, things of that nature. I guarantee you they don't see all the things that could come out of this and how detrimental is this to their life. He said if a driver refuses to respond in court or pay after several notices to appear, state law requires their license to be suspended for a year. To which my response is, Big deal. You can throw in a word in the middle of that that I can't say on the radio if you want. Oh, their license is going to get suspended. My guess is of that 77% of the people who are getting reckless driving tickets who aren't paying them, my guess is at least half, maybe more, don't have driver's licenses in the first place. You know, they they don't care or if they have driver's license, they're driving on suspended licenses or whatever. I mean, mean, look, I understand that the system, the system only works to the extent that the fines and the threat of losing your license and the threat of having your car insurance go up and all that, that that only works to the extent that, that that's a deterrent. But, my point is the vast majority of people who are driving 85 miles an hour, blowing through red lights, engaging in that reckless driving, they don't care. It just doesn't make any difference to them. Um, okay, then the judge says, well, also the fines don't go away. Okay, once they're past due, a collection agency gets involved. Oh, yeah, good luck with that. You've got the the 19-year-old driving the stolen car that's blown through the red light at 95 miles an hour. Yeah, you're going to have a collection agency that's going to get involved. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, And the municipal court notifies Wisconsin's Department of Revenue to intercept the amount owed from their state tax returns. (laughs) Which of course presupposes that there is a state tax return that is being filed. I mean, th- this whole thing is just—it's—it's it's a massive joke. And I'm not faulting—I'm not faulting the cops for writing the tickets. That's what they're doing. I, I'm actually not even faulting the municipal courts for, you know, their system. The problem is the law is ridiculous. The law does not deal with what the underlying problem is, and that is. People who just the, the financial penalty is not a deterrent at all, which is why if my friends in the Republic, Republicans who control the legislature are listening. And if, if somebody who has the ear of Tony Evers is listening, if you want to start making the streets of Wisconsin safer, here's what you do. You criminalize second offense Reckless driving. And I mean, you can define reckless driving however you want. I'm not trying to grab people who go, you know, eight miles over the the speed limit. But you know what we're talking about. We're talking about the people that blow through the red lights at, at 50 miles an hour over the speed limit, but somehow don't hit and kill somebody. But you know, they're out there doing this and you know that the next time they might well do it. Let's let's start getting tough on this. Instead of giving them tickets, which 77% do not pay, let's start saying, okay, there's gonna be a degree of accountability. You're, you're going to second offense reckless driving, six months in the house of correction. Third offense reckless driving, a year. I don't care, you'll figure out what the penalties are, but isn't it way past time to criminalize this and doesn't don't these numbers just demonstrate what a flat out joke the system we have now is it only works to the extent that it deters people and it might deter you and it might deter me but we're not dri- we're not the people driving 50 miles an hour uh, going through red lights we that's not us 855 616 1620 that is the old national bank talk and text line your thoughts 855-616-1620. Jeff, I agree. Stiffer penalties that deter people from recommitting. Jeff, I remember being younger with my Mustang GT and liking to squeal the tires once in a while with my friends, but I did it in safe place. It's still considered reckless driving. I wouldn't think I should go to jail for that. Weaving in and out of traffic and running red lights with no plates, etc., should be jailable. Yeah, look, you, you can define reckless driving however you want, but we know what we're talking about, and it's not... People don't pay speeding tickets. That's staggering that you have almost half of the speeding tickets aren't paid and three-quarters of the reckless driving tickets aren't paid. And the municipal judge says, well, this could follow people. You know, it could hurt them. They, they don't care. It's not stopping anybody until you criminalize this legislature in Madison. Nothing is going to uh, – there's no problem. They're not going to get – Better. Jeff, the problem I see with this is that some people are going to run more when getting pulled over because they don't want to go to jail, which might be a more dangerous issue than just dealing with the problem the way it is. Now, I don't see. I don't think that's the case. I, I think that what, what happens is the people that run, they, they run. And that's actually where a lot of the reckless driving ends up coming from. Jeff, if they don't see the impacts of these other things, insurance jobs, you know, how does that serve as a deterrent? Yeah, well that's, and I guess, see, that's, that's my point. Jeff, I 100% agree on reckless driving penalties. There, there's no question. Um, Jeff, what you don't understand is if these drivers do not pay their tickets when they go for their taxes and the refund gets taken out of, out of by the state. It happened to me because I forgot one ticket and then all of a sudden it was shown on a piece of paper from the state. Okay. Th- this, this presupposes That the people that are committing the reckless driving acts are going to be filing income tax returns with the state and are gainfully employed, to which my comment would be for a vast majority of them, you know, if that's what you think is is who's out there committing the reckless driving, I'm sorry. Make sure you tuck your shoulder when you fall off the turnip truck because the, the threat of, oh. Your, your insurance rates are going to go up, or we're going to suspend your license, or you might have your state tax refund attached. Well, if you're not paying state taxes and you're not filing these refunds, it's not much of a deterrent. And if you want the evidence that it's not a deterrent, 77% of the tickets remain unpaid. 855 616 1620. Um, let's see, um, let's talk to, uh, let's go to, um, James on the south side. James, you're on WTMJ.
3: Yeah, Jeff, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't even had these people, uh, I'd have them going right to, uh, to not, uh, collect any money, like Monopoly, go direct to jail, handcuff them, and go out, and they are to j- going to jail right away. Do not, uh, well, I mean, do not give them a no, ticket James- or anything else. Come on, Jeff. Let's demand uh, some darker, uh stability here. We're not... Well, no, James, look... We're getting all this on your
2: show. Look, James, thanks for Look, I'm not, I'm not... You're entitled to due process. I, I, I get that. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that you just... You, you, you know, people have the right to due process. I am just saying that if you agree with my basic premise that reckless driving is a huge menace, and I don't know how... You cannot agree with that. What were the numbers? January alone, you had eight people died in the city of Milwaukee due to reckless driving. And in some cases, they were the reckless drivers. But in other cases, they were just people who were innocently at the wrong place at the wrong time in an intersection with the light when the reckless driver sped through and hit and killed them. And, and yes, I understand that if you hit and kill somebody, then then you are then you are accountable. But my point is why do we allow people to drive recklessly and get away with it? And, yes, I say get away with it. And I'm not faulting the police. The cops are doing everything they can. Look, I would be more aggressive with this. I was trying to focus this. I'd be taking cars. I mean, I would do the same thing. I, You know, second offense, reckless driving, a crime. I would also, well, I've argued this before. You know, anytime you seize a car that, Anytime you come across like reckless driving and the person that's driving it doesn't have a valid driver's license or the license is suspended or whatever, I'd be calling the tow truck, I'd be hauling that car in, and they don't get the car back until you can come and show proof that you've got insurance and a license and all those sorts of things. And if that means that you're driving your mom's car without um, um, a driver's license, if that means your mom's got to go and pay the towing fine or whatever, sorry, maybe mom will think twice before she lets you take your, your car again. So I, I think we need to be a lot more aggressive about this. We need to recognize that there is a huge problem out there, and we we need to start dealing with it. And I do agree this is something where I think the legislature should jump on this. Dave downtown. Dave you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
4: Oh thanks for taking my phone call. There's just so many things they could do. I mean it means a conversation you could have for a couple hours, but uh, get to the point, but I've got some friends that live out on the east coast. And if you all live on the east coast, they put a vehicle inspection sticker, they want to make sure your car's roadworthy, it's got mm-hmm. windows. You know, it's got a muffler, it's got a, a converter. You also, before you get your car at the DMV, have to show a valid driver's license and proof of insurance before they even hand you a car. And if you don't supply those things, they suspend the registration. And if the car is picked up, you know, on the street, let's say, for example, someone buys one private party, they grab the car and you have to bring those items in. And if you can't provide the car proof of insurance with a valid registration, valid driver's license, they sell your car. That's what we need to do here, and I don't know why we're still sitting around the state legislature for the last 11 or 12 years, sitting on their cans doing absolutely nothing about this. And same thing with the city of Milwaukee. Shame on everybody.
2: Well, Dave, thanks for the call. I mean, this was this would be – you You would need the legislature to make it a crime. Uh, you know, the, the city – might have more latitude when it comes to towing cars and stuff. But I, I agree. You know, why Why are we dragging our feet on this? This is another one I talk about. The general public, my guess is 85% of the people, 80%, would, would support something like this because we're the law-abiding citizens. We're not the ones creating a problem. Jeff, at least couldn't we have a database of unpaid tickets available to police and anyone on it? Car immediately is towed until all charges are paid? Yeah, you you accumulate parking tickets in the city of milwaukee and after a certain point they find your car and it's going to be towed and you're not getting it back till you pay the fines shouldn't shouldn't it isn't isn't reckless driving on multiple occasions at least as dangerous as not paying parking tickets just asking interesting stories from the world of sports today is the nba trade deadline and there's a lot of a lot of big deals that have been going on in the last day or two. The Brooklyn Nets, who a couple of years ago, it's one of these interesting things about how like the best laid plans sometimes just fall apart. Remember a couple of years ago that the Brooklyn Nets were going to be the super team of, of, of this decade. They had made trades. They had brought in a James Harden. Uh, the the high scorer. They had brought in Kyrie Irving. They had brought in Kevin Durant, and this was they were going to be a dynasty that that won championships for several years. Well, they they didn't win championships, and now all three of them were are gone. They they dumped James Harden last year at the trade deadline, and this year Kyrie Irving he just got traded to Dallas, and the news is that Kevin Durant who's been hurt for a good chunk of this year, he's just been traded to uh, Phoenix. So they're in a complete and total rebuilding move. The um, interesting story involving the Bucks is, and, and this has been rumored for a long time, former Marquette star Jay Crowder, who I just loved watching him play when he played for Marquette. He, he's he been sitting out the entire year. He He was... Uh, a Phoenix Sun player, and apparently they had some disagreements about what his role was going to be. So he hasn't played at all this year. Uh, the, the Bucks have just cut a deal, and so what happened is, as part of the Kevin Durant trade, Jay Crowder got traded to Brooklyn, and now the Bucks have cut a deal that they are bringing Jay Crowder to the uh, to the Bucks for um, for uh, five second round draft picks, which is pretty much. They had amassed a bunch of second-round draft picks. I don't think they can trade a first-round draft pick until 2029. But they're they clearly in a situation where they're, they're trying to win it all this year, which I think is certainly the appropriate situation. So they're bringing in Jay Crowder. The, the big question is, he hasn't played all year. How is he going to fit in? What is he going to contribute? Can he contribute and stuff? But it's actually, if you're in it to win it, it's kind of a low risk sort of deal they're giving up second round draft choices but it's not like they had to trade a frontline player to bring him in and to see if he can if he can help uh let's see veteran guard george hill is also going to be sent back to Indiana, along with a couple other Bucks players, so and, and they're, they're making some of the, the trades of some of the the substitutes in an effort to try to balance out the salary cap. So Bucks clearly um, in it to win it, and they think Jay Crowder can help them. I just I, the question is, does he have anything left in the tank? And after sitting out the entire season, how long is it going to take him to get up to speed? But Good move, I I think, and uh, like I say, I, I loved watching Jay Crowder play when he was at Marquette, and hopefully we'll love having him play with the Bucks. Okay, go woke, go broke. I don't know if you have heard the term ESG investing, ESG. It stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, ESG, Environment, Social, and Governance, and... ESG investing is where somebody would say, "Look, I don't care really about financial performance. I want to invest my money in such a way as to well, I want to I want to make the world a better place. So, for example, um, I don't I, I don't I don't like oil companies." So even though oil companies are having record profits, I don't want my money going into um, in oil companies. So I'm going to have a mutual fund, and that mutual fund is going to not invest in oil companies. And I recognize that by doing that, I'm going to have a lower, I'm going to not get anywhere near as much of a return, but I'm going to be making a social statement. Okay? Well, normally, when it comes to retirement accounts, The the rule has always been, and this goes back to, like, 1974, the 1974 Employee Retirement Income Security Act, ERISA. And this this has to deal with, like, your employer. This isn't your your private, you know, brokerage accounts or things like that. Okay, That, that you can do what you want with. But your 401K plans, for example, the money you invest through work. And generally speaking, your employer will give you a handful of choices and things like that. So the rule since, well, since pretty much forever, has been on the part of the investors who are taking the money that is part of your 401k plans and things like that that's covered by the law. The rule is that they've had to consider, essentially, there's two things that they've had to look at. They've had to look at the risk involved in the investments and the financial performance. And in taking your retirement money that's invested in the 401ks, follow me here, that's what you're supposed to consider. What's the risk? Um, Is that acceptable to people? And what is the financial performance? All right, the Biden administration, in its wokeness, has just issued a new rule which would allow the people that are managing your 401k plans to not only consider whether the risk is acceptable and the financial performance of the investment is acceptable, but you could also, under this rule, you could consider, the financial advisor could consider ESG issues, environment, social, and governance issues in investment decisions, which essentially politicizes, retirement savings for 152 million Americans. So if you have a mutual fund advisor who who's running your 401k money who decides, you know what, I don't I don't like those evil oil companies. So I want to try to force the transition to solar power or whatever, so we're not going to invest money in the oil companies. So That means that we're going to perform, my performance is going to be substantially less than maybe people who do invest in the oil companies, which means the people who are invested in that particular mutual fund, they're going to miss out. So the Biden rule would allow, again, the political factors, the wokeness to be considered by financial advisors in deciding how your 401k money is spent. Now, what's interesting about this is that you have some bipartisan efforts um, in Congress to do away with this rule. It's not only Republicans, I think, although all the Republicans are there, but also a Democrat, Joe Manchin, introducing legislation that they want to see terminate Biden's ESG rule, which, like I say, they say, politicizes retirement savings for 152 million Americans. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Obviously, if you, in your individual accounts, if you want to make a social statement and you're willing to accept a 2% return when everybody else is getting 10%, but darn it, you know, you're... You're intellectually pure because you're not investing in, in some sort of, some of these companies that are doing things you don't like. That's your right. But when it comes to the federally regulated retirement fund, retirement funds of 152 million, should we really be considering environmental, social, and government factors beyond risk and financial performance? 855-616-1620. That's the old national bank talk and text line. I'm just saying. Go woke, go broke. And there's going to be a lot of people who I think are going to lose a ton of money and aren't going to know what hit them unless this rule gets repealed. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. So this ESG, and this is a term you're going to hear a lot, and it's a term that you should care about if you have money that's invested in some 401k plan and it's you know if you've got limited sort of options at through your workplace or whatever you you know you want to know about it now look i i have no problem if you as an individual investor decide you know what i don't care i don't care whether i'm making money and i don't care whether i'm in assets that are un reasonably risky to me. I want to make a social statement. So I'm big on climate change, and so I want to I want to invest in, in companies that are all about trying to promote, I don't know, solar power or whatever, even though those companies aren't making any money. This is my example. So if you want to do that with your own money, okay, that's a decision you make. But for 152 million Americans, many of whom are in these limited sort of choices, investment options that they're given through their 401k plans... Right now, or at least before Joe Biden got into this, what would happen is that there's two things that the financial advisors had to consider. One is, OK, what's the economic performance of the particular investment? Right. And secondly, um, what's the risk? How does this fit in with, you know, your your risk, your age, et cetera? All right. Under this woke investing, this ESG Biden would allow the mutual fund managers to put you in less successful, riskier sorts of things as long as they could justify it, saying, well, this is, this is good for society, or we think it's good for society, so we don't care if you're going to make less money. We're not going to invest in these oil companies where the stock is going up. We're going to invest in something else. Uh, boy, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be surprised by the results of this. There is movement in Congress, to try to overrule this. Jeff, I think the ESG rules are bad policy, um, but I think the effect of their continuance would be exactly opposite of what you expect. Um, whatever the retirement funds invest in, make those assets rise because of the quantities of dollars invested, so the retirements will do well. Who will be hurt most? The individual investors who don't put their money where the big funds do. I'm not sure about... That uh, Jeff, I believe this might be a court battle yet again. It's totally against the fiduciary law passed a couple years ago. As you know, the fiduciary law mandates the advisor or investor do what is beneficial for the client, not themselves, or I pretend, contend, the government. Go woke, go broke is correct. I don't think it will get by the court. Um Jeff, I do believe that people that are on the side of this political wokeness shouldn't have the choice to opt out. Those of us who are fiscally responsible should the op have the option to opt out and go with a different firm that aligns with their financial goals. Um yeah, Jeff, on ESG investing through 401k plans, does the employee have to choose the plan and give informed consent? No. See, that that's that's the deal. There there's no necessary informed consent that's there. Now, maybe you have multiple choices, you know, in your 401k plans that you can make the investment and you can do the research and you could decide whether or not the, f- the, the particular plan or advisor that you're with or whether the fund that you're with is one of these ESG funds or not, but I think you're gonna be the one that has to do that investing. Right now, the factors are, is it an acceptable risk? And, you know, what is the performance? which I think is how it should be. But, of course, you know, the Biden administration wants to encourage support for these various, okay, we've got these environmental concerns, we've got these social concerns, et cetera, so we want to support them, and we're going to support them with people's 401k money, whether or not it makes fiscal sense or not. Uh, Sam and McHenry. Sam, you're on WTMJ.
5: Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, Go back, what, 30, 40 years ago, we had a discussion in this country that Social Security was never going to be able, you could never live off of it when you get, so, you know, they encourage everybody, let's get these retirement accounts going, let's get the 401s, the IRAs, all of it. So here we are 30, 40 years later, and now if you remember when Obama was president, he was trying to get his hands on the the money. Republicans said, no, get your eyes off of it. So we had a little four-year break with Trump. Now they're back on it again, and they're using this whole green movement as an excuse to do this. And while that's going on, China's building coal-fired power plants like there's no tomorrow and I think the whole plan is they're going to poach what, what, you know, manufacturing jobs we got left in this country over there because electricity here will become so ungodly expensive because we're all going to have electric cars and electric stoves. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to be electric, but there's not enough electricity for that. So that means, well, we'll just move the rest of the manufacturing jobs out of here. They'll go to China and then you'll have your power to charge up your phone and watch your TikTok videos. That's the direction it's going.
2: Sam, thanks for the call. That's kind of the big picture uh, on this, I I guess. And I have to think that through in its entirety. All all I know is that I I guess with with the money that I have in my 401ks that's going to be there when I – hopefully be there when I retire, I I want the advisor to be looking out for me. I I want the advisor to be concerned with is this particular investment in my 401k account, is it – Is it appropriate for my risk level? Is it appropriate? Is it a good investment or not? You know, what what's the financial performance? What's the history? And I understand that past performance isn't an indication of future stuff. I, I get all that. But I want to know those things. Those are those are the issues that I care about and this idea that, gee, I'm going to suddenly find out one day that, well, instead of those things, we're also we're making investments that don't make any economic sense or are inappropriate for your risk level, but we're waking that we're making them because, gee, they support a social agenda that the individual advisor has no thanks i think that's inappropriate for people's 401k plans if you want to do it with your money outside of the the stuff that's set up by the government that's a different story
1: live from the annex wealth management studios at the avenue it's the jeff wagner show now here's wtmj's jeff wagner
2: good afternoon wisconsin Welcome to the program. So, Joe Biden gave his State of the Union address on Tuesday. The numbers are in, and the numbers, well, they're not good. Um, Joe Biden's speech on Tuesday was seen by... Roughly 23 million viewers across the seven major TV networks. These would be the major broadcast networks and then uh, CNN and Fox News and MSNBC. Um, now, you say 23 million viewers. Well, that that sounds like a lot of people. Well, it is, but um, that's down. Last year, uh, nearly 34 million people tuned into his first State of the Union um, address. So uh, down by 11 million Interestingly enough, uh, of of the major TV networks, Fox News Channel, uh, they averaged the most, 4.6 million viewers. ABC Second with 4.3, NBC 3.7. Isn't it interesting that Fox News Channel is the one that had the highest ratings? CBS with 3.5, SNBC with 3.46, and CNN 2.3 million, Fox Broadcasting 1.6 million. But the um, numbers... Uh, again, the numbers ended up being down which which again brings this question that I know has been discussed for the last couple of days, which is you know what is the continuing relevance of the state of the union at I I mean, I I understand, you know, it it exists, you know, and that under the Constitution, the the chief executive is supposed to give that annual address. But that, of course, was was in different times. Nowadays, with the 24-7 news cycle and the president talking all the time and there being no shortage of, gee, where are the policy matters, you wonder what the relevance of the state of the union is. And one of the things that's, I, I think, leading, leading, at least me to believe that it's less relevant than ever, and it might be, it, it might be irredeemable. Is the, the whole idea of of what's going on, and the I, I call it the increasing coarsening of of political discourse. Now, on, on Tuesday night, Joe Biden decided that because he's thinking about running again, that he wanted to. Well, he wanted to bait the Republicans, and so you you went through this lie, and it is a big lie, that Republicans want to end Medicare and Social Security. That's just not true. Um, There are some Republicans, and unfortunately, I, I don't think this is getting any traction, who recognize that Social Security and Medicare are unsustainable. So the idea is... Look, we we don't want to eliminate these, but maybe we need to reevaluate these every five years to figure out what we're going to do with funding and things like that. And that, of course, is portrayed as you want to you want to end Social Security and Medicare, which is completely false. But that's Biden. He's trying to find a a boogeyman to get reelected. He got elected in 2020 by saying, "Okay, I'm, I'm something different than Trump. And now he, he's looking for that, again, that boogeyman in 2024, and it's, okay, Republicans want to end Social Security and Medicare, and that's, that's just flat-out false. So anyhow, he, he comes out with those lines, and you have a number of Republicans who loudly scream liar and liar, and you saw some of those things. I, I'm not – and that's, of course, what the, the headline, you know, is – you have, oh, heckling Biden. Here's the, here's the story in the New York Times. Heckling of Biden reflects a new, coarser normal for the House GOP. Um, the repeated outbursts that interrupted the State of the Union address encapsulated the ethos of the new Republican majority, which styles itself after former President Donald Trump. Now, I, 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 am, I, don't, I don't have a real tolerance for rudeness one, one way or the other. It's just not it. And I wish... I wish people, even though Biden baited him and even though Biden lied, yes, he did lie about that. And he knowingly, intentionally lied about that. He wanted to use the State of the Union as an opportunity to, on national TV, to just take this really, really cheap shot and make a false statement about the Republicans. Okay, so he, he did it. But even so, I, I wish they wouldn't have responded with, oh, lying, etc. So, Because now you get all these headlines about how stuff is, oh, this is a, this is a coarser normal for the GOP my comment though would be how quickly we forget in february of 2020 know what happened that was that was when president trump gave what turned out to be his final state of the union address now let's flash forward back to that remember when several democratic house members walked out of the state of the union in protest to to his speech And that was before Nancy Pelosi sitting on the podium. Remember, she dramatically, after he completed his remarks, she dramatically picked up, you know, her copy of the speech and tore it into pieces. Okay, so now now I'm reading all these stories about how, gee, you know, the Republicans that this was so very, very terrible about the decorum of the House and things like that and and, and, yeah, I think there's a point to that, but how quickly we forget people walk out because they want to stage the, the protest. Nancy Pelosi tears up the speech. I think you can make a strong argument that yelling liar when Joe Biden is, in fact, lying about that, while they shouldn't have done it. I think it was rude. It was inappropriate. I, I don't think it's any more inappropriate, necessarily, than Nancy Pelosi with her staged, Let's rip up. Let's rip up the speech. And I guess my point here is: Would it be wrong to expect more from everybody? Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the old National Bank Talk and Text line. And, and again, I'm I'm not going to defend. No matter, even though you know truth might be an absolute defense, um, I, I'm not going to defend screaming liar at the president of the United States, even though I do believe he was telling an untruth. But. I mean where where was the outrage on, on the left and where was the outrage in the newspapers for, you know, Nancy Pelosi tearing up the speech that Trump gave, which was at least as much, I think, as an in your face statement. Don't we have a right to expect more from everybody? Eight five five six one six one six twenty, we discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I, I, I just I when I was watching the State of the Union, I did not watch it live. I watched it yesterday morning in anticipation of the show. And and Biden baits the Republicans by saying some of them want to end Social Security. Nobody wants to end Social Security. And this, and I'm I'm not going to go down this route. That's been even even the Lefty fact checkers say no that this is the the big lie that's out there. There are some. Rick Scott is one of a handful of Republicans who suggested that every five years Social Security be, you know, re-upped. Um, looking at this, and the reason he's saying that is because right now Social Security is going to go broke. That's just the reality. So by looking at it every five years, what you do is you can make sure that you do what you need to do. You can modify it to make sure it continues to go. But no, Ron Johnson doesn't want to end Social Security and Medicare. We've had him on the program many times. The Republicans, Rick Scott, doesn't want to do that. But because this is the third rail of electoral politics, um, the, the Republican position is, as other than this, like a proposal to look at it every five years, the Republican proposal: okay, we're not going to touch it, and we'll just wait and see what happens. But that is the reality. Biden knew it. Biden was lying. He, but that's okay. He, that's he was using that opportunity to try to create the the boogeyman that, that's there. And here we're going to starve older Americans and things like that. And and that's that's okay. I don't think the Republicans should have screamed liar at him. I think that that was a coarsening of this. And and I'm not. I cringe when they did that, but I don't think for all the outrage that you see in some of the, the papers about this, I don't think that's any worse than the people who decided to stage the walkout before Donald Trump's last State of the Union or Nancy Pelosi sitting on camera picking up his speech and tearing it into pieces. I mean, I think that's equally as bad, if not worse, than when Joe Biden you know, says something that he knows is untrue, you know, getting that response, but the whole thing is—is this—is this really what we are devolving to? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, the general disrespect demonstrated by society is bad enough, but the disrespect witnessed during the State of the Union is appalling. I don't care who is the president. Sad times for our times that we live in today, and and that's I again. That was I. That's what I think you've seen this over the last couple years. Um, Jeff, the answer to that question is absolutely, positively yes. Democrat, Republican, and everybody else. We should all realize that we were better when we treat each other with basic human decency, and everybody needs to grow up a bit, as well as respecting the processes of government, which, at least for the moment, that's my adding in there, includes the State of the Union um, uh, address, Uh, let's see Jeff it goes back even further under Scott Walker when every state Democrat fled to Illinois as a stunt prior to Act 10 professionalism is gone between both parties and I think it's a huge embarrassment Jeff I guess we wonder why our young adolescents are behaving in such a disrespectful manner maybe we can look at our um, representatives Jeff I don't think there's any way you could expect Republicans to just sit quietly and listen when the president is telling American people in prime time that the Republicans want to take away their Medicare and Social Security. This was the Republican chance to debunk that myth. OK, um, I, I guess. But there, my argument is are, there's ways of doing this and standing up and screaming liar in the middle of the speech. I don't think is the way that you want to, you know, do that. I'm just. I'm just saying, that was my kind of reaction. Jeff, I agree we should expect more from everyone. As a Republican, I can pick reasonable Democrats that I agree with on many issues, but I'm guessing there several liberal listeners who cannot pick one Republican because they're blinded by hatred. Until we pick reasonable outcomes and compromise, this is the environment we 're going to be stuck in Jeff. I feel Joe Biden needs to be called out when he lies to the American people, although it was disruptive and rude, but keep in mind that Democrats do it all the time. Well, Nancy Pelosi certainly um, did that um no question at all. Jeff, I say let it rip, just like the British House of Commons. Otherwise, the lying doesn't get called out in the American mainstream media. Well, I mean, it, it is very similar to the British House of Commons, where you have the Prime Minister who will will come, and I forget I forget the term they use for that, but it's it's he'll stand up, and the other side will scream at him, and it's kind of like this jousting match. But that that. You know, there's all sorts of things that I think are good about the British system. And there's all sorts of things I think are bad about the British parliamentary system. And uh, if if we want to have a situation where you have a question and answer session, that, that might be an interesting idea, but that's not what the state of the union is. Uh, Tom in New Berlin. Tom, you're on WTMJ.
6: Hey, Jeff. Uh, I think I Hi, disagree Tom. with you a little bit when you say they're both the, the same, because you look at the rules of the House. Anyone that speaks in the you know in the house, they're recognized, and when they're recognized, they have the floor, and you can't yell at them. You know, if you disagree or if they're lying, you have to wait to be recognized. So when the president goes to speak, he's the one that has the floor. He should be allowed to speak, and no one should be yelling at him, uh, regardless. But if you don't want to be there and you want to walk out, there's nothing you know saying you you have to sit there and listen. That's not against the rules.
2: So I well, think there's I think- a little
6: bit of a difference.
2: Well, Tom, thank, thanks for calling. I'm, I'm sorry. I think you're, you're parsing I, I, here. I, I think you're, you're splitting hairs here. I mean, I think my, my premise was that it was all disrespectful. Shouting down the President of the United States was, was disrespectful, but um, staging a protest or, or tearing up the speech you know, when you're on camera for Trump, that was, I, I think, equally disrespectful. So, to me, I mean, you're, you're splitting hairs if you say, "Well, you know, shouting something out—that's—that's that's against the rules." But the other stuff is fine. No, the, the overall point was that, that it was just in general, it was it was rudeness. These are political stunts, and I, I think you know maybe maybe you need to do better for this um, moving forward. Do I have any hope that it's going to get better? No, not for a long time. Back with more in just a minute. Which all, by the way, maybe this is just another reason why it's time to take the State of the Union Address and say, okay, for whatever purpose it might have served, you know, a century and a half ago, that purpose has has long since passed. And maybe it's time to take that and put that um, on the ash bin of history. Just saying. So the Super Bowl is Sunday. On Tuesday night, I was... um, I, I was playing I was playing in a, in a trivia contest okay I was at a area watering hole playing in a trivia contest and one of the questions was what city has hosted the Super Bowl the most times and um, it, it was kind of a it was sort of a, a stumper matter of fact that round we, we got all the questions right but we were discussing it my my, my friend bill said oh um it's going to be Los Angeles and my friend Mike said it's going to be New Orleans and so it you know it was I'm like New Orleans, Los Angeles. I, I, I don't know. Well, it turns out, you know, we were all wrong because Miami is the city that has hosted the Super Bowl the most times. I think that dynamic might be about to change because of one thing and one thing only, and that is, that is gambling. The Super Bowl this year is, of course, going to be played in, in Arizona. This is the first time that the Super Bowl is going to be played in a state that has legalized sports betting. So if you go to the game, if you're lucky enough to have spent the five grand and you have tickets to the Super Bowl, you can place mobile phone bets during the game while the game is going on. Uh, MGM, BetMGM, that's the gambling operator, they have a, a giant sports betting outlet that is in at the stadium grounds. I think they might have a giant tent set up where everybody going to the game can can make wagers and things like this. So I think one of the things that you're going to see is that you're you're going to see, well, they estimate that there's going to be maybe $16 billion in legal and illegal bets made, and that's more than double what happened last year with $7.6 and a large part of that is, again, because of the whole notion of legalized sports betting. But one of the things that I think that you are going to see happen is – because the game is now played in a state where you have legalized sports betting, I think that the uh, the, the revenues that are going to be generated through that are going to be absolutely through the roof. So I would not be surprised if in assessing where the Super Bowls are played in the future, sports betting is something that they factor into. And, for example, you know, Miami, which is, of course, Florida, Florida does not have legalized sports betting. So I I think, you know, moving forward, you know, Tampa or Orlando or Miami, those different sites, I, I wonder if they are going to be as desirable as places like, you know, Arizona that, that do in fact have that because there's so much money that is involved, um, with sports betting and it's going to be so much easier if they're playing it in a state where sports betting is authorized. So if you see people, you know, ducking out of the, the stadium, it, it, or on their phones during the game, it, it might be that they're checking in and taking selfies of themselves that, hey, I'm at the Super Bowl. It could be that they're just, you know, trying to get a bet down on who's going to score the next touchdown. Good afternoon. Welcome back. Um more sad news. Burt Backrack. And I, I know I know there's probably a lot of people um there's probably a lot of people who uh, don't don't remember who Burt Backrack was, but there was a a point of time in the 60s or 70s when he was he was one of the he was probably the the leading composer In the United States, now this was—you know—he was—he was was doing pop music at a time when, like, rock and roll was was taking off, you know, big time. But he was responsible and was uh, the—again, he—he worked with a lyricist. But you know he was responsible. Lots of songs: "The Look of Love," "This Guy's in Love with You," uh, "They Long to Be Close to You," which was a number one hit for the Carpenters in 1970. What the world needs now is love. Um, remember that these are and these were. You know, I, I understand that maybe a lot of this stuff has gotten lost in the annals of time. But these these were pop standards that were just. Huge in the uh huge in the sixties and the early seventies, but particularly the sixties had a diane warwick um she was she ended up being kind of his muse, and she was the singer. They walk on by alfie I, I say a little prayer again, do you know the way to San Jose, which is one of those to me that's one of the the songs that's an earworm song for me um raindrops keep falling on my head which was the movie, in the, if you've seen the movie um, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, that was that. Arthur's theme for the movie Arthur. And, and the list goes on and on and on. I'll never fall in love again. Uh, Burt Backrack, just a, an incredible, incredible talent who was just flat out White hot during the, the, the 60s and the early 70s, and uh, passed away at the age of 94. But just an incredible talent, and one of those that I think, you know, when we think about music, we think about rock and roll, and then we think about all that stuff. But Burt Backrack was just an incredible, an incredible artist when it came to creating these incredible pop songs, and uh, he has passed away. All right, the T says, You never forget your first. And my producer said, Jeff, what are we going to be talking about? Well, he was then at least somewhat relieved, I think, when I told him what this was. There is a story in the New York Times today that caught my attention, Um, and it's part of this series that they're running about young people coming of age. Let Let me share a portion of this with you. The ability to get behind the wheel of a car for the first time and go anywhere is a distinct American rite of passage. For many young people, their first car grants them a freedom to explore their city on an intimate level with their windows down and music blasting and away from the prying eyes of parents. It can be a means to escape monotony and fear, especially during the height of the pandemic, and a gathering space where they can let it all go. And what the the story is, is there was a New York Times photographer who grew up in Los Angeles and spent last summer going around and, and talking to young people who had just gotten their driver's license about their first cars. In interviews conducted over the fall, they spoke about the joy of getting behind the wheel, creating a space of safety and curiosity for themselves, and then they talk, uh, they, they, they talk about that. That struck a nerve with me because even though it was a long time ago, I mean a long time ago, I remember vividly, vividly, the day I got my driver's license. Now back when, back back then, you had to actually take a driver's test. And because of the timing, my birthday was in May. They only offered driver's ed during the, the preceding summer or something. And I was too young to take that. So as a Christmas gift for me, my parents got me like the driving lessons that I think it was arcade, a private driving thing. So I, I, I took that. I remember on the day of my 16th birthday, we had an appointment like at the DMV at 7:20 or whatever took my my dad took me down I took the driver's test, I passed it, I got that temporary driver's license, and I remember exactly what this story is talking about that, that sense of freedom. We lived like three blocks from Nicolay High School and I, but I wanted to drive the car to school. You know my, my parents said, no, you don't need to drive the car to school, but once you get done with school, you know you can take the car out and I remember this incredible sense of freedom you know driving the, the car going "I can go anywhere I want you know within you know <laughs> I, I can drive over to my friends house. I, could, I, I just I remember this sense of freedom that I had and I remember this like it was yesterday. And I also remember my first car. And I mean it was a hand me down car. It was, this was you know it was a car that my parents had but they You know, they they made arrangements. They had two others, and and this was going to be the the car that I got to use once I got my driver's license. My first car, I will never forget it. It was a blue Buick LeSabre. You know, look, it wasn't particularly fast. It wasn't particularly stylish, but you know what? It ran, and I love that car to this day. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Do you remember when you got your driver's license, and do you remember your first car? Let's have some fun in this segment of the program. 855-616-1620. Back with your calls in just a moment. Yeah, that's supper so back rack. Yeah, uh, From the movie Sun, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, BJ Thomas went to number one with that. Bert Backright passed away uh, at the age of 94. All right. Obviously, I'm able to remember my first, and a lot of other people are as well. Your first car. Jeff, I didn't get my license until age of 20 back in the 70s because I grew up in an area where mass transit was king. Once I did, I spent the first few years driving around in an AMC Levi's Gremlin that had the wash-and-wear Levi's denim seats. It was uniquely ugly, but it got 20 miles per gallon and had a nearly 500-mile range. I took advantage of that, driving many road trips by myself, exploring the United States. Let's start with Valerie in Milwaukee. Valerie, you're on WTMJ.
6: Hi there. Thanks for taking my call.
2: Hi, Valerie. My first
6: car, I remember, hi, I have a 1970 or 72 red Ford Gran Torino Sport, and it had that big orange-to-yellow racing racing stripe on the side.
0: And that was so cool, I thought.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
6: Which yep. I still and had were you, that
0: car.
2: <laughs> and were, were you cool driving it? I mean, did everybody, like, turn their head when you were your friends when you kind of, like, picked them up and stuff? Oh,
3: yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we had a good time <laughs> have, with that. <laughs> I have no doubt. Thank, thanks for the call, Valerie. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. I Look, I, I, I understand. I mean, I, I wouldn't. I just, I just have this incredible fondness for this like blue, um, Sabre we had, and I think it, it had like this this black vinyl roof. It wasn't a convertible or anything, but look, I, I just, but I just, I, I love that car uh, because it was my first. John on the South Side, John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
6: Hi Jeff. Um, Hi John. You brought back some memories. I went for my driver's test, and I failed the first one because I didn't parallel park well enough. They said, and then also entering into a uh, parking lot that was actually undivided, but I, they said I, divided, I didn't stay close enough to the left. So <laughs> I went a week later to get retested, and I get the same guy, and we go out and ride, ride around, and he says, turn here, turn there, do this, do that. Everything but parallel parking, and everything but entering into a parking <laughs> lot. We so says, oh, okay. hey, you passed. You pass. I'm like, well, how did I pass now? You didn't even retest me. I said this after I got my license in my hand.
2: I, I, I was going to say, I, I hope you right. I hope you didn't say that before he gave you the license. Yeah.
6: <laughs> and I said, well, how come you didn't retest me on what I failed on? He's like, oh, don't worry about it.
1: You know, I think he just
6: did that to boys so they would appreciate yeah. the license more. You know, they safer. So my, you brought a car, my first car, uh, a big heavy green tank. 1971
2: Buick Lesabre. The Buick Lesabre, yeah. Know what they, here, no, 68. It was a 68 Buick Lesabre. I, I remember. Yeah. No, thanks to call. I, I mine was a 68 blue with a vinyl top. Thanks to call, John. No, no, I was a 68, and I I was thrilled to have it. And then the second car I inherited from my parents was. A 1970 Chrysler Newport, a tan, and which which was like we call it the land yacht. It was one of the I think the, the biggest cars like ever made. You could put a you could put a ton of people in there, and then then later on I started buying my own cars, and you know that that was kind of a whole different story. So I, I I'm not saying that I was the, the cool kid driving the cool cars, but at the same time I was driving. I had a driver's license. Far be it from me to complain. Charlie in Germantown, Charlie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon
3: good afternoon thank you jeff 16 year old charlie back in 1966 got his first car a 1959 volkswagen beetle at 35 horsepower car would not make it up a lot of hills around here when i had friends in the car traded that car a few years later on a 65 mustang to this day i wish i had both of those cars back thank you yeah, yeah, this-
2: yeah, you know, thanks to Charlie. I appreciate it. the fifty nine, the fifth, <clears throat> the, the fifty nine Volkswagen. That I think might have been the first year of those that they came to America. Maybe fifty eight, fifty nine, right, right in there. But you're right that just and the the engine was in the rear, and and yes, those were hey. There's four of us in the car. Let let's get out and let's kind of push the car up the hill. The sixty five Mustang. Yes, there, there's no question about it. That's the car that you would uh, – if you kept that in good shape, you would love that one. Todd in Watertown. Todd, you're on WTMJ. Hey,
0: howdy, Jeff. Hey, uh, don't Hi. make uh, uh, light of that 68 Sabre. That wasn't my first car, but I had one um, not too – about 10 years ago. I got out of uh, Arizona, and actually I sold it to a guy in New Zealand. He had it shipped <laughs> from here in Wisconsin to there, um, huh. Yeah, it was a '68 less Sabre two door. Um, I sold it to him for fourteen thousand, so it, they they they, they uh, brought their value. But anyway, um, just just for uh, uh, stuff. But I, my very first car was uh, I was a 1981. I was fifteen. I bought it from a girl that was uh, uh, about three years older than me. We were kind of dating, and it was a 1970 Camaro. And Ooh. my dad was so cool that he would actually. Before he went to work, he'd be late, and I would get to drive, you know, because with the temps, you'd have to have a a licensed driver with you. He would drive with me to school. I'd get to drive the car there, and then he would drive it home. And then another kicker was my grandfather worked for a a chrome plating place. So he chromed out, like, all the stuff in the engine compartment (laughs) for me. So it was what a, it was so cool I, and what a great topic! I, I gosh, I wish I still oh, had
2: that car. I, I missed it dearly. <laughs> they, 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 Todd, thanks for the call. Thanks for 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 listening. Yeah, that's the. I, I was sitting there. I, I admit I was getting a little bit of of envy there because my first car was a '68 Buick Lesabre, and yours was a '1970 Camaro. Um, I, I definitely know which one of us had the the cooler car. The, there's, I had. I, I always had Camaro envy. I had a. Somewhere down the line, somewhere along the line, I had a Pontiac Firebird, which was kind of like a poor man's Camaro, and 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 the particular car I had was was it was in the shop all all the time, and I, I was spending. This is when I had no money, and I was spending what little money I didn't have to try to keep the thing repaired. And finally it was like, okay, this this isn't worth it. Moved on to other stuff. Jeff, I remember the day I got my driver's license in 1981. My parents gave me and my twin brother their old 1971 Chevy four-door Impala. I bought his house, uh, his out, um, not after, after not long. Somebody was saying 1974 um, Cutlass. I, this is this is kind of a morbid story, but I, I just, in the interest of sharing things, I had one of my best friends in co- in high school. He um, he had, I think it was like a seventy four. I think it was a seventy four Cutlass convertible. The and and it was a cool car. The 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 morbid thing was. His uncle had died, and he inherited the car. So it was kind of like, okay, you're you're driving the car that your uncle died in. Okay, well, but it didn't stop us. We were kids. We had the cars. We absolutely loved it. Don downtown. Don, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
4: Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Um, Boy, this is I I (laughs) had to pull over and embrace this topic. Um, Got the license. Brand new York Electra 225 Limited waiting in the garage in my mother's car. Put on WZMF, which it would barely come <laughs> in, and uh, put everybody in the car. And my first car was a, or actually a Gremlin with a three-speed and vacuum wipers. <laughs> Oh, so, gremlin! That
1: changed drastically. <laughs> yeah. Don, thank, yeah, thanks
2: for call. Cool. I haven't. I, no, I'm sorry. I'm kind of up against the clock. i get Gremlin. I haven't. See, I, I mean, I remember the AMC Pacers, and my roommate in college had a Ford Pinto. You know that. Um, you know, all, all these different vehicles that you hope, okay, and you yeah, had the Pacers and the Pintos and all that type of stuff, and I always was the other way around. It was like the big car. Jeff, my first car was a 1972 VW Beetle. i dry, I trade what I'm driving now to have it again. I loved that car. Yeah, I did a bit on Beatles, a, a couple, uh, the, the Beetle vehicles, a couple weeks ago. Um, I had like a 2015 uh, VW Beetle that I ended up selling, and now they, of course, they're not producing them anymore. I, I missed that one. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry. We got jammed phone lines and uh, hundreds of, of over a hundred texts that are uh, coming in. Um, I, I, sorry, I don't have a chance to get to all of them. But take that walk down memory lane when you're having dinner tonight. Um, just sit down and you know, just say, "You remember the time you got your drive?" license. You remember what the first car was? Guarantee it'll lead to at least 15 minutes of fun conversation. You won't be arguing politics or debating who's going to win Kansas City or Philadelphia.